let's say you're driving in your car, going to work, or you're taking your kids someplace, maybe running an errand, something like that, and you're listening to the radio, right? Or you're listening to like a Spotify playlist, if that's your thing, and a song comes on, it, it immediately gets your attention. It makes you sit up a little bit because you know this song. In fact, it's connected for you uh, to some moment in your past, some significant moment, maybe five years ago, 10, 20 years ago, something like that. You hear the first notes of that song and all of a sudden you're transported back there, right? Now you're thinking about that summer. You're thinking about that trip. You're thinking about those friends. You're thinking about church camp. You're thinking about that one romance and now your fingers are drumming on the steering wheel and your whole body's starting to engage and people are driving by and they're looking at you a little suspiciously because you're singing and you aren't just singing, you're singing like you used to sing with your high school friends. When you'd go on road trips together, you know, you're singing like you did in college. When you'd go see the shows with that one band, in other words, you're singing like you mean it. I'm a loser, baby, so why don't you kill me? You know what I'm talking about? Music does this to us sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah awakens us, activates us to something going on in our present, something that happened in the past, gives us energy to keep moving ahead in time. It can be true of music, it can be true of literature, visual arts, it can also be true, as you and I well know, it can also be true occasionally of this sacred art that we call preaching. When in the company of other people, and with the help of God's Spirit, a flawed human being like you and me can say something true and meaningful and in the process, rearrange the air. To borrow a phrase, rearrange the air, reframe our experience, contextualize for us some enormous disaster. Give us an image of God that we haven't had before. Tell us something that, if we're honest, we already knew, but we really, really needed to hear it again, any of us with ears to hear. And may I just tell you again today, in case you need reminding, how desperate the world is for preachers who do something like that. It's always been true, you know? You go back to the Exodus narrative, you know the story. There's this little scene that we often forget about right there at the beginning in Exodus chapter 6. Moses is tasked with going to tell Israel the good news that God is going to rescue them from their oppressors. And he goes to give them the news. Their liberation is at hand. And it turns out Moses doesn't quite get the reception he's hoping for. He delivers the message and it says Israel would not listen to Moses. Why? Quote, so crushed was their spirit and so cruel their slavery. What a line. So crushed was their spirit. You know, that word spirit, ruach in Hebrew, it can be translated a few different ways, right? Right? That word ruach, if you look at it in context, crushed in spirit, it literally translates to shortness of breath. Israel won't listen to Moses, why? They can hardly breathe. Life for them has become claustrophobic. It's like they're so stifled under Pharaoh's regime, so anxious about just surviving from one week to the next that they can hardly take a full breath. And if they can't take in air, you know how it works, they can't take in hope or joy or peace or consolation either. And so it is a picture of a group of people who have effectively censored every voice in their lives except the voice of their own anxiety. Sound familiar? 
you know, if you're like me at all, you know what it's like, right? You know what it's like to go to bed at night worried about something and to have stress dreams and to wake up way too early the next morning because your body is just braced for whatever the day is going to bring. You know what it's like to go from moment to moment, from day to day with that trembling in your stomach, to go from meeting to church planning meeting, elder meeting to elder meeting with that shortness, that shallow breath, right? You also know that it is way, way easier for us to talk about peace. Sometimes as pastors, if we're honest, it is way easier to philosophize about peace, to theologize about peace than it is to access peace on any given day, to carry peace around in our bodies in some sort of meaningful way. Are you with me? And of course, what's true of you and me is true of the people we're speaking to. A couple years ago, the APA, American Psychiatric Association, in 2018, they came out with this study. They found that in 12 months, between summer of 2017 and summer of 2018, Americans' anxiety levels had spiked five points across all major categories. Health, safety, finances, relationships, politics. They had spiked across all major categories, and they had spiked across every demographic, regardless of people's age, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their gender. So crushed was their spirit. So short was their breath. Had me thinking about this terror alert system we used to use. You remember this thing? Back in the day, this like cipher of ambiguous stress color coding for the different threat levels. We stopped using this in 2011. I'm not sure what we replaced it with, actually, but you know how it would go. You'd be out somewhere and you'd hear yellow, threat level yellow, and then you'd be with friends going, I think yellow's good, right? I think, I think it's good. I mean, it's a soft color. You know, the sun is yellow. You want to go outside to be in the sun, so. But the sun's also a ball of fire, so that's confusing, right? You know the reason we got rid of this thing, ultimately, aside from the confusing color scheme? Because although there are five threat levels represented here, guess which two we never, ever used? The bottom two. Exactly right. Not once, friends, not once in its nine-year history between 2002 and 2011 did our government say to us, guess what, guys? It's a blue day. (laughs) Just general risk. No, if it wasn't red or orange, it was perpetually elevated. All yellow, all the time. And it stopped working because we all just got used to it. You know, we just scrunched up our shoulders a little bit more, right? And carried on our way. It's not a bad metaphor for the way we're tempted to live sometimes. Would you agree? Yeah. I think of the writer Jenny O'Dell. She came out with a book last summer called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. And she's talking a lot in this book, thinking a lot in this book about media, the effects of media on us and our addiction to technology. And there's a lot of people doing good work in that area, but she is great at diagnosis if you're interested in that kind of thing. She has some great language attached to it. One of the things she says is social media For most of us, thinking broadly, it has three major outputs, anxiety, envy, and distraction. 
Those are the three main outputs of social media. She says, we live in a cultural moment, in a media environment that has created, her phrase, an arms race of emergency in which people are constantly competing, right, to report on the next crisis, compound the next crisis, an arms race of emergency that leaves us feeling oftentimes what she calls trapped in a frightful present. And either we stay trapped in a frightful present or depending on our use of technology, how addicted we are, how much we numb ourselves via social media. She says it's either we remain trapped in a frightful present or we experience, here's my favorite phrase, algorithmic entombment. Algorithmic entombment. I want to suggest to you all, I want to suggest to us today, that's how most of us, most people are showing up to church on a regular basis on a Sunday. Encouraged? Sure. You know, grateful? Once in a while. And also tired, busy, bored, distracted, angry, envious, algorithmically entombed. A spell cast over them like some huge virtual net, and yet hoping and yet waiting, even when they don't know they're waiting, even when we don't know we're waiting for a counterspell, for something to help us breathe again, right? For something to persuade us, you and me, to keep hoping, to keep following, something from the outside to come and meet us in our malaise, our numbness, and to somehow restore us to ourselves and to each other and even to God. Let's say for argument's sake, that's what we're out to do, shall we? In a room like this one, let's say for argument's sake, we're out to craft a counterspell like that. I wanna talk about that work, that process, crafting a counterspell, and I wanna think about it with you on three different levels or looking at it from three different angles. I wanna talk about it in terms of posture. I wanna talk about it in terms of language and then also in terms of technique. But first I wanna talk about preaching as a posture, as an invitation to orient ourselves in a particular way. And by the way, if you have time after today, after the session, love to stick around and have more conversation about any of this stuff. Preaching as a posture. One of the first lessons I got in writing well, as Jeremiah said, I'm a creative writer. I teach writing and literature. But before I went to grad school for any of that stuff, one of the best lessons, first lessons I got was from a poet named Scott Cairns. And he said this to me. He said, Here's the thing, it applies to writing, it also applies to preaching or homiletics. We often think that our task, our primary task is one of expression. In other words, he said, you have a story that you wanna tell. You know, you have a text that you want to explicate, you have a truth that you wanna reveal, you have somewhere you wanna go, you have an argument you wanna make, and now your job, so you tell yourself, is to simply express that truth put down that story and that idea in the most compelling language possible. That's the task. And he said, of course, of course, on some level, writing, preaching is always an act of expression. That's always what we're trying to do. We're always trying to come up with the compelling way to say something, right? He said, the only problem, if, if we aren't careful, the only problem is that that orientation, 
If we cling too tightly to what we think we are supposed to be writing, supposed to be producing, we inoculate ourselves to surprise. We put ourselves in the driver's seat to such a degree that the possibility of anything really new, anything really unexpected, anything really revelatory breaking through, the possibility of that happening gets severely diminished. It's like that orientation blocks us even from being open to surprise because you know how it is. If you're going along and like you have some new idea or some sense of maybe I should address this thing instead, it really messes up the week, doesn't it? The sermon writing process says that's the temptation here is that we cling too tightly to what we think we're supposed to be making that it gets to be kind of predictable. It has a kind of static quality to it or an overdetermined air. He said, writing is expression, but the thing you need to remember is it's also cognition. He said, in other words, writing is the, always the invitation to think our way from one place to the next, to pray our way from one place to the next, not knowing what's going to happen in the middle. Not knowing how God might meet us in this process or what else might intervene not knowing what we might discover. In other words, writing as cognition is uh, it's an opportunity, Cairns would say, to investigate our own curiosity, our own questions, to consider again why we are who we are in light of Christ, how it's become that we are who we are. It's an opportunity to wrestle with those things. It's, all, it's almost epistemological, Cairns would say. It's a study of how you know what you know. And when you think that way and write that way, you begin to find that you will be surprised in the process. It's writing is cognition, he said. It's also, writing is expression, it's also cognition. And part of what that has translated to for me is that writing as cognition tempers certainty. Whatever certainty I have about what I'm supposed to do with this text, it tempers certainty with curiosity. Why is Jesus crying again? What is purity of heart exactly? What was it about Delilah that hooked Samson so bad, even though he knew that was toxic? It was a toxic relationship or vice versa. What was it about Samson? What's going on there? It's writing that tempers certainty with curiosity. It's also a belief that language is alive. And if we attend to words, you and me, in the company of God's Spirit, words will lead us someplace we might not ever anticipate going. If we really attend to the language in front of us. I think about the novelist David Grossman. I'm going to be quoting a lot of writers at you today. I hope that's okay. I I love theologians and pastors and preachers, and I listen to them and pay attention to them as well. But I think we have some things to learn from writers when it comes to the art of communication. Can we agree? David Grossman, the Israeli novelist, he has a sign above his desk where he writes, all it says is, I had no idea I was going to write this. He's written countless books, essays, you know, novels, articles. I had no idea I was going to write this. Or I think about Rebecca Solnit, the essayist. She asked this killer question at one point. How will you go about finding that thing, the nature of which is totally unknown to you? She says most of what we want, you and I, like the really important things, 
grace, wisdom, love, inspiration, most of those things are about in some way extending the boundaries of the self into unknown territory. Even It's about even becoming someone else entirely. How are you going to do that? How are you going to go about finding that thing, the nature of which totally eludes you? Her answer? Leave the door open to the unknown. As a preacher, of course, we might say, leave the door open to the spirit, to divine mystery, whatever it is, fill in the blank, to the apophatic, if we need to go there, right? Leave the door open, she says, to the unknown. She says that's where the most important things come from. It's where you yourself came from and where you will go when it's all said and done. For some of us, this idea seems a little bit too messy, maybe, I'm guessing. Maybe even just a little bit too risky. I have friends, plenty of friends of mine, who would say, you have fun, go being epistemological. I've got two hours to write a sermon this week. You know? Totally fine. There are people here, friends of mine too, that say, you know what? I need an outline. I need structure. I need to work my bullet points. I need to go from top to bottom in that order. That's how I operate, to which I say, totally fine. Totally cool. I believe in structure. I'm a fan of structure. I think it's critical, right? But if you're open to experimenting with this posture at all in any respect, you might consider a couple things. One of the things I do typically, if I'm writing a sermon, working in my office, I'll go over to the door sometimes. And just in this kind of, you know, sacramental way, I'll open the door just to crack. I'll go over to my window and I'll crack the window open just a little bit, just as a way of signaling to the Spirit of God who is working with me, I hope. Would you please be a part of this process? Would you please come and meet me here? Without you, I am lost. I want to leave the door open to you and your voice and your ministry and your work in my life so that I might have something worth saying come Sunday. You might just do that. You might go and open the window, you know? Signal in some way. You might also take a piece of paper, as I often do, and just set it next to you. You've got your text, you're already working your system, but you might just set a piece of paper next to you or open up an extra Word doc and just say extra stuff, title it extra stuff. And as ideas come into your head that do not seem to apply, you might just dump them there. You know, song lyrics. Why would I be thinking of that song? I don't know. That thing that my friend said to me the other day, I'm just putting it there. And then once, a while, once in a while, I'm going to look over at this piece of paper and just see if anything's trying to sneak in and surprise me. A lot of the stuff you put on that document, fair warning, is not going to be relevant. <laughs> Couple things might be an open door. And the good news about this kind of process, the good news for you and me, is we do not have to, we no longer have to be totally clear on where we're headed in order to begin the work. Because writing as cognition has faith that God's going to meet me along the way. I'm just going to start writing my way into my confusion here and see what happens. That's the good news. The bad news is not knowing where we're going is no longer an excuse to avoid the work right? Which is my favorite sin in this process. I don't know what I need to say yet, so I'm just gonna, you know, run some more errands. No, the invitation is, yeah, you don't know what you're gonna say, so start already. See what happens. And here's the real payoff, friends, I would submit to you. Karen said this to me, and I found it to be true. He said, if you begin to practice 
this kind of posture, you are going to find moments. You are going to have moments in which something does break in and catch you off guard, and you're going to find it elevates the work. And not only is it going to elevate the work for you, oftentimes you're going to find that it's that very moment in your sermon that's going to elevate your listener when the time comes. Crafting a counterspell is connected to posture. I also think it's connected to how we wield language, how we steward language, you and I. Barbara Brown Taylor, the great preacher in her book, When God is Silent, she reminds us that one of the ways we've been made in God's image is, and made in God's image and made to exercise dominion, she would say, I guess, on earth is through language. We have been gifted the power of the word, she says. That's her language. We have been gifted the power of the word. And yet, it is a challenging and sometimes frightful gift. And Taylor would argue it's a challenging and sometimes frightful gift because, as you know, we live in a culture that has a highly contested relationship to language. We live in a, in a culture in which words are used every day to manipulate, to seduce, to sell me something, to score some kind of political point. Add to that just the sheer volume of words that are coming at you and me day in and day out. We are so bombarded by language and by information much of the time. It becomes almost impossible at times to sift out what is meaningful from what's just noise. You with me? To the point, Taylor would argue, that people start listening to us, the preacher, people start listening to preachers sometimes like they listen to politicians. Or they engage with a sermon like they engage with a Hulu ad. Is this relevant to me? Yes? No? Click. And of course, the challenge, I think, for the preachers is even more significant at times because we are often dealing with an audience, you and I, who is highly familiar or highly conversant with the lexicon of faith. I'm not saying they're black belts, you understand. I'm not saying they're theological ninjas necessarily, but they know the words if they've been around for a while. And the result is before we even say a word like grace, gospel, sin, guilt, redemption, forgiveness, disciple, Lord, before we even say the word, they think they know where we're going. They think they know what we mean. Right? We have inherited a language, you and me, that is beautiful, profoundly sacred, and at times, if we're honest, worn down and a little bit threadbare, maybe even banal if we aren't careful. And yet once in a while, a preacher comes along and does something just miraculous. Once in a while, she breathes life into words again. She resuscitates language in a way that logos and pathos and ethos in the moment they create cosmos, this world that we can see and that we want to be a part of, that we want to inhabit. Yes? It's like when you're on the airplane and you got that pressure in your head and you have to, that bubble bursts and you feel like you can hear again for the first time in a while. Once in a while, a preacher does something like that. And I'd suggest to you that 
our great preachers, like our great writers, one of the things they're doing is they're often looking for a way to defamiliarize you and me with a certain idea or a certain word so that it pops for us again. You with me? Like they create a gap or a distance in our minds so that we can hear that word differently than we heard it a moment ago. So one of the ways they'll do this is they will etymologize. They'll take a word, they'll dig down a little bit to its roots, they'll start to examine its alternate meanings, alternate colorations, they'll break it apart, trace its complex history. They'll etymologize like that. Once in a while, they will reach for really strange imagery. You know, an image, a picture that they attach to this idea. We've never put those two things together before, and all of a sudden we can see it. We retain it a little bit better. Sometimes they work with high and low diction. They work in different registers, linguistic registers, high and low diction. If you want an example of someone who's a master at this, John Howard Wesley is in D.C. He's at a historically black church there. And the guy is as good as they come, working in high and low registers. Like, I just watched this guy and go, okay, that's untouchable. So I'm commending John Howard Wesley to you all. Another writer I I admire, John Jeremiah Sullivan. When you think about different registers, he has this quote, this moment that just gets me every time. He's writing an essay about how the world's falling apart, as we all know, in a lot of ways. And then he turns the corner about midway through the essay, and he's, he's been talking about how easy it is to despair and to be afraid, and then he starts arguing for a different kind of posture. And at one point he says, take courage. What I'm saying is, take courage, period. And then comes this line. It has got to be one of the most ugly sentences, you know, this guy has ever written. It's so ugly, it's brilliant. Take courage, period. That and that alone is pretty much never the incorrect thing to do. And you're going along, you know, and you read that line and what you expected him to do, of course, was to say, take courage and then go on this flight of eloquence, trying to convince me rhetorically that courage is a good idea, right? And he's using rhetoric, but he's using it in a different way. He's stripped the artifice down, right? He's stripped away everything fancy. I mean, think about it. That, we don't want to start sentences with that too often, if we can help it. That and that alone, well, now there's two that's in the first four words. That and that alone is pretty much, well, now we're equivocating. Never, oh, now we're back is pretty much never the incorrect. Well, now we got a double negative, never an incorrect thing, which is an incredibly like, vague word, to do. You get to the end of that line and you go, but he's right. Dang it, he's right. That and that alone is pretty much never the incorrect thing to do. Sometimes writers will work in different registers like that. Sometimes they will tell a truer truth. A preacher will tell a truer truth than you expected them to tell you. Have you had this experience before? I think about Beekner's sermons from the 50s and 60s, Frederick Beekner. There's a sermon in there where he says, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, truthfulness, integrity, usually the best policy, but cheating is also a great policy once in a while in the short term. It's a great policy for a little while, if we're honest. And you go, okay. You're here to tell me the truth, apparently. 
about the way the world works. And it ups his credibility for me in that respect. Am I making sense? Preachers are often trying to defamiliarize us in some way in that respect. One of the things we can do if we want to wrestle more with language is consider poets. Go and read good poets, as you know, because poets, their job is to flee cliché, to turn away from whatever is trite and superficial. But really, I think the invitation to you and me much of the time is to simply start with the language that we have. Whatever that is, let's not beat ourselves up when it's not terribly powerful or poignant. Let's not get real down when our language is mundane. Let's just start with the language that we have and then go back to the sermon and and ask ourselves, is there a place here, maybe one or two places where I want to do a little more work, where I want to bear down, where I want to try and sharpen my language, make it a little more oblique or a little more original so that my my hearers can hear it better. Posture, language, and that brings us to the technique or the craft part of crafting the counterspell. I'm not going to spend a lot of time being exhaustive or comprehensive here. I just want to point to a few things I've been thinking about over the last couple years as a preacher, offer them to you, and as I said, I'd love to discuss further if you're interested. Let's assume that we've done the pre-work here. Like, let's assume that we have chosen a passage well in advance. We've studied the text. We've studied key themes, maybe key words. We've memorized chunks of the passage. We've tried to discern God's voice and God's leading in the process. We've had a receptive posture. Maybe we've consulted commentaries, historical, pastoral, theological commentaries. We're looking for the Sitzenleben, right? The situation in life. Let's assume we've done a lot of that work. First thing I do mentioned already is I take a piece of paper like the extra stuff document I told you about I set it next to me and I free associate for about 10 minutes I just try to put down as many ideas as come to mind different texts that are connected to this one different images different word lyrics quotes whatever I just try and put that right down next to me and then I try to begin writing a sermon as soon as possible because maybe you're like me in this respect if I'm not careful this is what's gonna to happen to me over the course of the week. If you can't, can't read the text, it says Monday morning back here to the left, Wednesday afternoon, Thursday lunch, Saturday at 11.55 p.m. And you know how it is, sometimes, you know, nine o'clock Sunday morning, you're drawing that smiley face on the horse, just barely, you know, trying to scratch something out. I want to avoid that if at all possible, right? So I am trying to write as early, start writing as early as possible to find my way into the sermon. And as I do that, I'm thinking about a handful of things I'm going to give them to you in quick succession. I'm thinking about tapestry and transitions. Our job, of course, most of the time is to say one thing well right? To say one thing and to say it in depth. But in my experience, to do that well, often what you want to have working, what you want to try to create is a dense tapestry of ideas or a chorus of different voices that are all echoing and speaking to each other and saying a similar thing. And so I'm trying to take from my extra stuff document and I'm trying to figure out how to create a tapestry like that. I'll give you a quick Example out of John 11. I gave a talk on John 11 a couple years ago, maybe. Jesus and Lazarus 
the moment Jesus starts crying. Yes, we know the passage. And the question I, I ask at one point in that sermon is, what's going on here exactly? Like, what is this a picture of when we see Jesus weeping openly in front of these people? Go with me for a minute. I would suggest to you it is a picture of someone who is so present to other people. Mary, Martha, you, me, that it hurts. So present to other people that it hurts. We don't know how to be present like that much of the time. Would you agree? We avoid being present like that to one another much of the time. It just takes too much of us. It takes too much time, too much emotional energy. See Jesus in Gethsemane saying to his friends, could you not just keep watch with me for an hour? Could you not just be in this with me for a little bit? And of course their answer was no, no, we really can't. That's beyond us, Jesus. We don't know how to do that. Just as our answer oftentimes is no, no, we can't. We don't know how to be present to one another like that. We don't even know how to be present in each other's pain. And we can't even be present to ourselves most of the time, if we're honest. It's just beyond us. We aren't strong enough for any of that. But good news but thank God there is one who is strong enough. You with me? There is someone who is stronger than we are. You know when I sit and when I stand, the psalmist says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Like when you're in a room like this one, say it's a big party, like a wedding reception, and you're talking to someone over here, but then you look up and across the room, you see that person who knows you really well, your best friend, your spouse, and they're looking at you and you lock eyes for a minute and there's that transference that takes place because you know what they're thinking and they know what you're thinking. And you go back to the conversation, you know, you smile and you turn away, but for a moment, there's a an aura around you because you know that you're known. Yes, you are acquainted with all my ways, the writer says, before a word is on my lips, you know it completely. That present. That's a little run on John 11, right? It's not that profound, ultimately, but if you stand back and just like diagram it, you notice there are five or six little moves in there, right? Jesus crying, what's it a picture of? Someone who's so present to somebody else, it hurts. We don't know how to be present like that, do we? See Jesus in Gethsemane saying to his friends, could you not be with me? See his friends saying, no, we can't. Just like we're saying, no, we can't. Most of the time we aren't strong enough, but thank goodness there's someone strong enough. Quote the Psalm. This, you know, God pays attention to us at every moment. Like when you're in a room, like this one, and you have that exchange, go back to the Psalm, that present. That happens in maybe 45, 60 seconds max. You know the way I could make that whole thing a lot worse? Stretch it out. Take a lot longer with those moves, with those conversations. Maybe throw the text up on the screen and explicate it for the people, right? So they're with me. Sometimes we don't give the brain much credit, but you all know the brain is smart. And if we do that thing well enough, that brain is gonna keep with us. And in fact, it's gonna keep the brain alert. It's gonna keep people alert because we're working quickly in these different registers and we're moving back and forth and we're saying, come on, you can do this. Gets people sitting up a little bit, right? But to do that well, we can't just weave a tapestry. We've got to have clean, quick transitions. We have to have memorized our transitions much of the time. I would suggest to you that many of us, myself included, as pastors, as preachers, we often take way too long on-ramping into an illustration or a quote and way too long off-ramping. 
and we wear our congregation out in the process. You know, we have a quote that we want to use. We're really excited about it. And we don't start by saying, came across a quote this week. It says this. We don't start by saying, look at what this writer, this theologian says. Boom. We start by saying, you know, I love bookstores. On my day off, you know, I just, I love to go over to that bookstore and just walk around, just be among the books, you know. And I was over there last week, a couple weeks ago, I was just standing in front of this section, you know, just minding my own business, and this title jumped out to me, and I looked at the blurbs, and oh, I know this guy, I know that, so I, you know, I decided to buy it, and I went home and started reading this thing, I showed it to my wife, she started reading with me. And I came across this one point that I just think really connects to what you and I are saying, talking about here this morning. It says this. Honestly, friends, what are you thinking by the time I get there? What's that? Yeah. You're thinking bookstore, right? You're thinking about his life. You're thinking about his conversation with his wife or her husband. Mainly, you're thinking, spare me, right? You aren't, you aren't going to write the person off you aren't against this person, you're still there to learn, right? Like, all of that is true, but you're also thinking, bless his heart. (laughs) He'll get there eventually. And you're kind of checked out, frankly. In the same way, friends, on the back end of an illustration, you know, we have a story that kills. It freaking kills. You hit that moment, that pivot, that turn, and everyone's with you, and they're leaning forward, right? And then we go... I've been thinking about that thing all week, you know, like, just crazy that that would happen. I went home and talked to my wife about it, and she's been thinking about it, and I've been wondering what that might mean for us and our community, and here's some thought. It's just like, dude, dude. This is a bad analogy. Let me just front load this up. Okay, this is not probably where we want to go, but you know when two boxers are in a ring, right? And like, the one boxer stuns the other, you know? What does that boxer need to do next? And we as preachers, oftentimes, you know, like we stun the audience. We have this moment, like we hit them, and the weird thing about our audience is they want us to hit them again. (laughs) They're sitting there saying, come on, yes, there it is, there it is, hit me, right? Put me down. Again, terrible analogy here, okay? There's, there's got to be a better one. But when your audience is leaning forward like that and looking at you, you know what I'm talking about. When they're changing posture, you hit that line and they're leaning forward and you can see them. Think about it. They are giving you their chin. And they're saying, hit me. You hit me already. Hit me again. And we shy away from that a little too often in my view. Tapestry and Transitions. Let me also talk to you about this idea of the underneath. The underneath. I took this phrase from Marie Howe, who wrote a poem about Mary Magdalene a few years ago, from whom seven demons were cast out. And in the voice of Mary Magdalene toward the end of this poem, this haunting line, she says, Mary Magdalene says, the underneath, she's thinking about her former life, the underneath, it was always with me. And I think the reality oftentimes for you and me and our congregation, our community, is we're living up here. We're living on the surface quite a bit, right? We're just going from day to day, thing to thing. Meanwhile, there's this whole 
undercurrent, subterranean reality of hope and fear and longing and pain and shame and loneliness running beneath the surface there. You with me? We're we're living up here, we're talking up here, we're doing our errands up here. There's all this other stuff happening. It goes unnoticed much of the time and unaddressed. I got a text a couple weeks ago, no, longer than that, a little while ago from a friend of mine who just said, all it said was, I had a dream last night, it was a hard dream, and I woke up this morning really disappointed with my life. Not a bad metaphor for what most of us have experienced at some point, right? I had a dream and I woke up disappointed. Woke up the next day, woke up five years later disappointed. I wanna talk to that person if I can help it. I wanna talk to that person in me and in you. I wanna talk to the person, don't get me wrong, who loves God with their whole heart and wants to do whatever they have to do to serve God with their whole life. I wanna talk to that person, but I also wanna talk to the person who really wants nothing to do with God right now and kinda wishes God would leave them alone. And I want to do that because if I don't access that person, you know what's going to happen? They're going to come up to me after a sermon and they're going to smile and they're going to say, great sermon, pastor. And they're going to walk out the door and I'm not sure much is really going to change for them. And so if I'm talking about anger, if it's a sermon about anger, I'm not wanting to talk just about anger. I want to talk about an addiction to control that is driven by fear and the way all those interrelate to one another and what Jesus Christ might have to say to that person. If I'm thinking about temptation or talking about temptation, I want to talk not just about temptation. I want to talk about our incredible, sometimes impressive capacity to deceive ourselves to tell a story up here to ourselves that allows us to get what we want without ever really owning it and being honest about it, right? By the way, I think that's pretty much the David and Bathsheba narrative in a nutshell. I don't think it's just about lust. I don't think it's just about abuse of power. I think it's about someone who is so, so good at telling himself an alternate truth that he disintegrates He breaks in two, and he tells himself himself a story up here that allows him to get what he wants while also telling himself a story, doing something down here. What am I saying? He disintegrates and tells a story up here that is one thing and goes after the thing he really wants over here. So, I mean, let me me, me say, say that a little clearer. You know the story, right? I'll make it quick. I don't think David says to himself, I'm going to go engage with Bathsheba, and then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kill Uriah, her husband. You know what I think David does? Super impressive. This is just me. This is my interpretation. David does this. I feel like our kingdom is a little stagnant right now. Like, we haven't been to war in a while, and we all need something to galvanize us. We need to galvanize the nation, you know? Bring in the, the Joint Chiefs, will you? Let's have a talk about this. What territory is vulnerable? Just, let's just whiteboard this thing. What territory might we need to take, you know? How might we want to point our resources? Oh, them, them, okay, okay let's do that then. And let's use, instead of the way we normally go about this, let's use this one platoon, this infantry, because that'll catch them off guard, won't it? The whole time David's saying to himself, you know, this is what it's like to be king. I'm doing my job. 
I'm supposed to lead the nation into battle. He's doing his job so well, he's telling himself a story so well that when Nathan comes to tell David this little parable, it's the simplest parable in the world about the rich man with a lot of sheep and the poor man who only has one sheep, when he hears that story, he can't even see himself in it. That's how disintegrated he is. Takes Nathan saying to him, you are the man. You are the man. I'm talking about that kind of self-deception. Walter Brueggemann, the theologian, he says, too often we offer a seducing certitude to people that covers over where we really live. We offer a seducing certitude that covers over where we really live. We sanitize reality, in other words, and then we wonder why people are unmoved. But we weren't attending to the underneath. And friends, it is always with them. It's always with us. I'm thinking about the underneath. I'm also thinking about pronouns. When it comes to the way we talk about the human experience, you and I, not to get too reductive about it, but you and I generally have three options. I, we, or us, and you, right? You might think about I as the voice of implication. We're talking about our own experience, our own story, and we're inviting people to implicate themselves through that, to see themselves in us, right? The voice of implication, we, the voice of identification, you, we might call the voice of imputation. I would suggest to you all, each of these pronouns traffics in its own authority. Each of, it tra- each of them traffics in their own authority. They each have their place. And they are each most potent when used in concert with the others. If you are a developing preacher, you've seen this, I'm sure. It was true of me at at a time. If you're a developing preacher and you come out of a particular tradition or you've been mentored by a particular person, sometimes you have a propensity to use one pronoun or one set of pronouns over the other. So you really gravitate toward the I and we language. Lots of I, lots of we, but you kind of avoid the you because it feels a little aggressive. You don't want to offend, right? And what we do as a result is we render our sermons a little bit toothless, frankly, if we avoid the you most of the time. Then there are other preachers who are super comfortable, super comfortable with the you. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Not so much I and we, that's not really their thing, but they love the you. And as a result, their sermons might come across on occasion as a little bit smug or even bullying. I think the greatest preachers are trying to figure out how to deploy their pronoun arsenal to great effect. And so one of the things you'll notice preachers doing a lot is when it comes to I, they will often confess and diagnose a problem using the I. They'll confess and diagnose with the I. They'll stand in solidarity or cast vision with the we. And they will encourage or provoke or even confront with the you. And you has its place. Don't get me wrong, okay? Hear me saying you has its place. It's a really important tool. I mean, imagine that moment with David and Nathan. Imagine Nathan coming to David and saying, David, I have a story for you. There's this really rich guy who has a lot of sheep. And then this one poor man has only one sheep. And the rich guy takes his sheep and kills it to serve to his guest. You know, David, I do that sometimes. (laughs) I was thinking we all do that on occasion. Would you agree? Take what doesn't belong to us? 
we need the U. We need the U. And I would say to you, for my own uh, purposes, I am often trying to get a U in the first three minutes of my talk because I want to be real clear. I'm not just talking about me and us. I'm talking to you. And I'm, talk I'm putting a U at least in the last three minutes if I can help it at all. In the first three minutes and the last three minutes. Because I want it to be about us, but I also want it to be about us as individuals. A couple other things, and then we're done. Um, one other thing, really, and then we're done. Um, weirder and wilder. By which I do not mean theologically. I'm not suggesting we go rogue when it comes to belief, okay? I'm talking about something else. Brueggemann, again, he has this killer book called Finally Comes the Poet. It's a book in a lot of ways about preaching, Walter Brueggemann. And he argues that the pulpit has been dominated over the last few generations by technicians, is what he calls them. The pulpit has been dominated by technicians. And technical mastery, let's be clear, is a super crucial part of the preaching task, right? We want to be really good exegetes. We want to steward the biblical narrative well. Of course that's true. Brueggemann says it's been dominated by technicians, and that's not a bad thing, technical mastery, but we don't want it to be to the detriment of the inspired, wild, poetic voice that is too often secondary or marginalized in the process. And so one of the things I'm often asking myself is how might I tap into the wildness of this text? To the wildness of God's activity in my own life or in this world and how might I help others get in touch with it too? And I'm not like the gold standard in this respect, friends, but just by way of example, in the last few years I gave a sermon a while back uh, kneeling, the, the whole sermon on my knees because it was about Paul and Ephesians 3 and his prayer to the people. I uh, put a 20-foot ladder on stage and dropped those maple keys, the little twirling things from the ladder as I was talking about being in awe at the natural world and creation. I invited people to stand up and sing holy, holy, holy with their hands over their eyes like the angels do in Isaiah 6. I took a baritone ukulele, it's a pretty big instrument, and spent a lot of time talking about a plank in your eye, walking around with a baritone ukulele sticking out of my head, right? Just imagine the scene. You realize Jesus is actually funnier than we think a lot of times, the idea of a plank, right? Um, the still small voice with Elijah in the cave. I went around with my phone in my apartment just recording every small sound I normally ignore, my wireless router the hum in the back of my refrigerator and just asking the question, what did that voice sound like? What does a still small voice sound like? And let me be clear, we aren't doing these things. I'm not trying to do these things for the novelty. This isn't weirdness for weirdness sake, right? You aren't doing this so that you become that pastor or that preacher who does the weird, cool, creative stuff, right? We do this because in my experience, God often uses those things to connect with people and, and because our audience's expectations will either be an enemy or a friend. They will be an enemy if they are never challenged, but only obeyed. If we just show up and do the same thing week after week, and they know what we're going to do first, and they know what we're going to do last, our work is going to be that much harder. But they are a friend. Our audience's expectations are a friend if we can honor them and then subvert them at the right time and in a creative way. And when that happens... 
when we undercut our audience's expectations in a creative way, that is often the moment that the spell gets met by the counterspell. That is often one of the ways that you and I at the end of the week find ourselves saying, I had no idea I was gonna write that. That's one of the ways that people, our communities, begin to recognize and wake up again to the fact that the world is charged, as Gerard Manley Hopkins used to put it, wrote it, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. We know this poem? I didn't hear you, I'm sorry. I'll need you to speak up a little louder. Do we know this poem? Now, let's end with that poem, shall we? The world is charged with the grandeur of God, Hopkins says. Talk about subverting expectations. How are you? The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Hopkins is a tricky person here. He's an etymologist. He loves words. That word Gethsemane in Hebrew it literally means place of the olive press. In the days of Jesus, when olives got pressed, the oil would fall into a pan, and the pan was tilted at this angle so that all the oil would pool in one corner, right? The grandeur of God gathers to a greatness, Hopkins says, like the ooze of oil crushed. You want to know where God's glory is on display? Look in the garden. Look at Gethsemane. Look at the man carrying the weight of the human experience on his back like no one else can. That's where God's glory resides. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Rod being like a scepter, like a king carries, like a symbol of authority. Why do men then now not recognize his authority? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade and bleared with toil and shares man's smudge and wears man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. It's this picture of separation, people separated from earth, people separated from each other, alienated from their God, nor can foot feel being shod. But for all this, nature is never spent. You and I might say for all this, grace is never spent. Amen. There lives the dearest freshness, talk about a phrase, the dearest freshness, deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, in other words, though it keeps getting dark, friends, we all know it does, we confront darkness every day. Though the last lights off the black west went, ah, morning, morning, hope, joy, ah, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs. Why? Because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods. with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. The Holy Ghost brooding over the bent world like the spirit brooding over chaos. At the beginning, the chaos of your life, my life, the chaos that is our community, every which one of us, every one of us, the Spirit of God over the bent pastor broods, over the bent preacher in his office, in her office broods, 
saying, keep going. Keep listening. Keep the door open to the unknown. Wrestle with language. Take artful risks when you can manage it. More than anything, take courage. That and that alone is pretty much never the incorrect thing to do. Amen.